Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the very final chapter in this fascinating book, hundreds and hundreds of years before the Messiah. And if you're able this morning, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you today. We open our minds to you today. Would you speak? Would you move? And would we not give in to the temptation to settle for too little in our human experience? May we also recognize that we have access to an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, as we read earlier in the lectionary text for today. I'm grateful that I can look across the room and call these individuals brothers and sisters and that you call them sons and daughters. Thank you, God. Fill us afresh right now with your spirit. In fact, if anyone in the room right now, you just want to be filled with the spirit afresh, as Paul commands us to constantly be filled with the spirit. If you want to be filled with the spirit, I just pray that you acknowledge that by lifting a hand in faith and saying, fill me now, Holy Spirit. Yes, God. Yes, fill us afresh with your spirit. We love you. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Today we do come to the conclusion, for good or for ill, of our six week survey of what some have called the most contemporary book in the entire library of the scriptures, that being the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I want to say uh, you ought to be grateful because one of the churches that I followed that did this teaching series as well, they spent three months all summer long going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and you only got six weeks. So you talk about three months of utter uh, madness and depression. I don't know. That's tough. But uh, today is our final day. And as we have noted or made reference to throughout this teaching series, the aim or the point of the book of Ecclesiastes isn't 
to cast some sort of uh, nihilistic or fatalistic cynicism toward life, but instead to remind us of the absurdity and the futility of life apart from God. It is easy for us to get to the end of Ecclesiastes and be so cynical and fatalistic about life. But that's not the primary point or the primary aim. The primary aim of this book is to remind us that life is utterly absurd and produces neuroses and madness and futility when it is separated from God or from the transcendent. That life under the sun, as the writer uses, within time, void of the transcendent, is, in the language of Ecclesiastes, hevel, smoke, a mist, vapor, fleeting, elusive, vain, full of worthless idols, or a common word is meaningless. That apart from God, apart from the transcendent, everything, every experience, every pursuit is utterly meaningless. And the wisdom of the teacher reveals to us that God, or without God, I should say, there is no significance or worth given to life. There's no worth if there is no transcendent reality. It is all just a collection of fleeting moments, random experiences, persistent suffering, and chemical reactions within a decaying material world, if there is no transcendent reality. Your life being no more special than fallen leaves on the ground. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes goes on this uh, intellectual pursuit, this research project, seeking out meaning and significance in life primarily through uh, four different elements, pleasure, profit, power, and performance. And he experiences the max capacity of all of those that this life has to offer under the sun, coming to the same conclusion time and time again. With every philosophical experiment, he gets the exact same result. Without God, life is a, quote-unquote, chasing after the wind. Underscored by the ticking of time. Yet, weaving throughout this whole book is the timeless human predicament that we all experience a longing for the more than, a longing for transcendence, searching for what might possibly lie beyond the sun, what is outside of the material world, what is outside of time. Articulated very clearly, I think, by the great C.S. Lewis, where he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. How many times in your life have you noticed this insatiable hole within you 
where you have tried to fill it with everything and somehow it just never seems to be totally satisfied. Never totally content. Just another mechanism that ends up fleeting, fading away into the background. And if we're honest, in our modern era and the technological age, we are obsessed with mechanisms and means and technique. But yet we seem to be experiencing a crisis of meaning. And chapter 12 in Ecclesiastes provides the closing remarks of the teacher's lecture. A lecture that was apparently given, given in one setting and lasted at least an hour, which uh, you all know what that is like. Don't make fun of me. <clears throat> it then returns at the end to the author for final comments on the teacher's presentation. Because remember, there are two voices. There's the teacher and then there's the author. And in this chapter, it returns back to the author for his final comments on the presentation given by the teacher. And for 12 chapters throughout Ecclesiastes, it feels like an existential knot that you created as a second grader learning how to tie your shoes. Do you remember those knots that you created in elementary school? Or maybe you have kids now who are creating those for you as parents. They are the worst. Like you're getting scissors out, knives out, all the things, trying to pull this knot apart. And Ecclesiastes is a bit like an existential knot that somehow in chapter 12 finally gets untied and loosened with one sentence. One sentence, two imperatives or two commands. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion. Here's the end. Here's the culmination of my pursuit. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Or as some texts say, this applies to every human. This applies to every human being. So after the author hears this presentation, he says, after this pursuit, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Now, when we hear the command, fear God, I imagine it makes us rather uncomfortable. Yet I want to argue today that fearing God is quite possibly the most foundational disposition required for a life worth living. More than love, more than truth, more than grace, more than goodness, more than mercy, I actually think fearing God is the most foundational disposition required for a life worth living. And as we consider the aim of all human life and the barometer for whether we are actually living or not, because that's a question we've asked, am I really living? I want us to leave a breadcrumb trail that leads to Ecclesiastes 12, 13. In fact, this is a verse that you could probably highlight in your Bible, 
write it down, put it somewhere where you will come back to it over and over and over again. In some ways, it kind of functions a bit like uh, the Great Commandment, right? Or Micah 6.8, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Or the Great Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Shema. This little verse, I think, helps bring clarity to the entire library of the scriptures and the response for us as human beings. So I want us to leave this breadcrumb trail. Now bear in mind, wisdom, as articulated last week, is applied knowledge on the basis of a desired outcome. It's not just information or details, but it's applied knowledge that we use in life based on something that we are after or want or an outcome that we are in pursuit of. And this is wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. And he isn't just giving random factoids or information or thoughts or observations if it is wisdom. Because if it's wisdom, he is giving us and has to give us some sort of focus point, some sort of outcome, some sort of pursuit. And here he is giving us, at the conclusion of the book, the intended focal point for every human being on the face of the earth. The simplicity of this command can easily make it to where you overlook it. But the weight of this command is something that I think is utterly necessary for us if we desire a holistic life of flourishing and well-being as human beings. He provides for us the mark or the target, that which we can filter every direction, decision, and action in our life. How does this decision, this, this action, how does this direction align itself with fearing God and keeping his commands? The entire meandering pursuit of this book and the chaotic, topsy-turvy kind of human experience leads us to this revelation. Fear God and keep his commands. Like a long hike through the woods and up a mountain, the scenery begins to kind of open up, and there it is, clear as day. And I want to spend the majority of our time today zooming in on and unpacking this command specifically to fear God or fear the Lord. So, here are five notes on this concept and command to fear the Lord. Let's walk through them together. A lot of you mentioned last week you love the practicality of last week's teaching, so I'm just going to utilize that as the basis of where I'm going today. All right? Enough of the theoretical stuff, right? I want to know what to do today. It's good. First point I want to make for you is that to fear the Lord doesn't mean to be scared of the Lord, but to be in awe. And this principle sets the whole stage for the rest of the exploration today. To fear the Lord isn't to be afraid of him as though you are scared that he might hurt you. But rather it is to be in awe. 
a key word for us today is awe. A couple definitions for the word awe for you. Awe is a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder or surprise. An overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, fear, etc. produced by that which is grand, sublime, extremely powerful, or the like. One other definition said that awe is the feeling we get in the presence of something vast that challenges our understanding of the world. The great psychologist Jean Piaget called this accommodation, but basically just means that some of us experience things that's going to require a new way of seeing the world in order to understand it. That your whole worldview has to change in order to receive the information. Because most of us pack information into the worldview we already have. But what all does is all says, you got to change your whole worldview. You've got to change your whole schema, your whole pattern, your whole outlook on life in order to comprehend this information. That's what awe is. And in a book that has been exploring significance purely from a man-made, man-known, man-centered, under-the-sun, imminent world, the writer's final conclusion is that every human being, every living soul, is to live a life in awe of God. He took a turn at the end. Not just curious about, but astonished and amazed at life beyond the sun. It is one thing to be curious. It's one thing to seek. It's another thing to be amazed, astonished, and in awe. And this is how he closes the book. The universal transcendent impulse of what is behind the material world. It's almost as though in this text that the heavens open up when this statement is made. The sky opens, the lid pops off of the book, the door opens, the light is let in, the horizon is lifted, our eyes are raised at the end of Ecclesiastes. Malaise is turned to magnificence, confusion turned captivating, wandering turned to wondering, searching turned into staring. He's saying, be in awe. Be in awe of what lies beyond the sun. Now this Hebrew word, Fear or awe is yira. Okay, can you say that? Yira? Great. We probably said it wrong, but that's okay. And it obviously is translated fear, but it also means to be in awe or to revere. To revere. 
Yet, also, it can mean dread or terror. But both connote this physical, visceral response of trembling. Think about a time in your life where you are encountering something or someone and it caused you to literally tremble. Where you got goosebumps and you were caught up in the moment because it is such an experience of awe. Now, as Gavin noted for us in week one, Ecclesiastes can produce, in his words, existential dread. It's great observation from the young man, young scholar. Yet, it moves ultimately to a place of commanding existential awe, not existential dread. It's 11 chapters of dread. Seriously. And one chapter of all. But that one chapter changes everything. In your life and in your journey, it might have been, and might ha- it might have been over the last, you know, decades of your life, 90% dread, but all it takes is one moment of all to shift the course. 11 chapters in your life could be full of angst, madness, neuroses, psychosis, and dread, Yet in a moment, it can shift to awe and everything turns. Because that 10% in some mysterious way weighs more than the 90%. It's just like in your life when you've maybe experienced tons of um, struggle and strife and challenge. Things happen constantly. You're like, I can't catch a break. And then you catch one break. Changes everything, does it not? One moment in your life could change the entire trajectory of eternity for you. One encounter could change the entire trajectory of your entire existence for eternity. We move from existential dread to existential awe in one sentence. Now, when this innate human feeling within us of either awe or dread is aimed at the created imminent world, it will inevitably produce dread because it can't eternally sustain. In other words, when this feeling, this yira is in us, is aimed at a purely imminent world, then what happens is we experience a degree of dread because what we're aiming at isn't there. It's producing a kind of dread. Yet, when it is aimed at the eternal transcendent creator God, it becomes not dread, but awe. The difference between dread and awe is the object pole. We're all going to experience the same thing. The question is, what is it aimed at? If it's aimed at nothing or something that is ephemeral, it's going to produce dread. 
If it's aimed at something that is elusive, that's man-made, that's created, that will fade away, that is finite, it will produce dread eventually. If it is aimed at the eternal God who has existed for all of eternity, beyond time, beyond material world, beyond what you can even fathom, it will produce not dread any longer, but all because he can sustain that feeling and that aim and that pursuit. An object unworthy of all eventually produces dread. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes and Gavin revealed that to us. Let's just make it very, very practical, all right? This is like someone saying that the best burger on the face of the earth is at Hardee's. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, I do like a hot ham and cheese, but really? The best in the world? You think that's it? Dread. That's dreadful. It's the best. Okay. Or, or here's another one. This might hurt some feelings. I don't know. That Myrtle Beach, South Carolina is the most beautiful paradise on the face of the planet. Ocean Lakes Campground is the eighth wonder of the world. Some of you are offended because you just got back last night from Ocean Lakes Campground. If that's our bar, we're settling we're settling for something that's too low. And it's going to lead to dread. I promise you that. Or a spray-painted t-shirt and a bad stomach ache. I don't know. We've got to lift our eyes to something beyond. I didn't know that it was going to be that funny. I'll be honest. Some of you are like, I ain't coming back because he's hating on Myrtle Beach. Let's just be honest. Myrtle Beach is not it, okay? It's not it. Now, some of you are like, I go to Cherry Grove. That's Myrtle Beach, brother. Myrtle Beach. So, dread, this feeling of dread, malaise, results from transcendent longings within a closed system. When you long for something that is beyond the box, but all you have is the box, it's going to produce dread, but you can't get rid of the feeling. So the, the lid has to open up because dread comes from this anticipation of the decay of everything. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is decaying. Everything's becoming more and more disordered over time. It makes sense that we see the word dead in the word dread. But just before the book ends, in the midst of our pessimistic nihilism, awe does what it does, and it catches us by surprise. Inherently pointing to the transcendent. Affinity and beyond. Somewhere over the rainbow. Second to the right and straight on till morning. The more than, the transcendent. Um, the Oxford scientist and mathematician John Lennox says, the majority of those 
who have reflected deeply and written about the origin and nature of the universe. It has seemed that it points beyond itself to a source which is non-physical and of great intelligence and power. To fear the Lord is to be in awe of the Lord. Here's my second point for us. Awe begins by remembering. Remembering. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says this, and this is from the teacher, not from the author, but from the teacher. He says, remember your creator. It's one of those little couple of words that you should highlight. Remember your creator. Awe has a way of reminding us of our place in the cosmos. And the only way this can happen is to remember our creator. Implicitly remembering that we are creatures. John Wesley says this, One design you are to pursue to the end of time, the enjoyment of God in time and eternity. Desire other things so far as they tend to this. Love the creature as it leads to the creator. The Westminster Catechism is famous for saying that the chief goal of all man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. When we remember our creator, it puts us in our proper place. And the great human proclivity is to put ourselves out of place, to put ourselves out of order, to take control, to get the seat that God can only sit in. And fearing God reminds us of where we stand. It reorders us somehow. It's like reminding ourselves of who the coach is. Every time we remember the creator, we're remembering who the coach is. We're remembering who's boss. We're remembering the leader. It's not the human person. It's creator God. What a practice. Just three times a day, if you stopped and say to yourself, I remember you now, creator God. It reorders you into the proper place. Now consider this. Remembering is the act of bringing back to mind an experience of a thing, a person, an event. And this practice marked the people of Israel. Still does to this day. It marks the people of Israel. Meals, festivals, rituals, practices, stories, all as a means of remembering what Yahweh had done in the past. A storied way of refocusing our attention. For the people of Israel, remembering is not just recalling facts, but it's remembering and telling the story. I love Advent as we step into it next week. It's a wonderful time for us to invite our families, our friends into the story through practices and rituals and tradition. Kids love traditions. There's something about traditions that orient us in a story. 
And remembering has a way of refocusing our attention, not just by recalling facts. And a lot of us have gotten good at remembering Bible verses, and that's awesome. But do you know the story? we got to be better at knowing the story of God. I'm all for having verses on deck. You need those. Jesus had them. When the enemy came, Jesus threw them at them, right? But we've got to be able to recall and recount God moving throughout time, space, and history in the scriptures and in our own life. He has done it, he is doing it, and he will do it again. We call it being a witness. Or in the tradition I grew up in, testifying. We've got to know how to testify to what God has done. Tell the story of breakthrough. Tell the story of liberation. Tell the story of freedom. Tell the story of miracles. This is the essence of remembering. And all begins by remembering. But remembering also has a way of making us whole again. Because when something is dismembered, it is broken down and broken apart. But when something is remembered, it is brought back together again. Dr. Rebecca Letterman, who was here with us a couple of weeks ago, She says, welling up from the truth of who we are called to be, all also serves as a source of consonance and unity. Now, uh, recent psychology studies from uh, UC Berkeley have showed that all produces physiological energy because it takes the focus off the self. The fundamental impact of all is it takes the focus off of you to something beyond. This physiological synergy was also referred to by Emil Durkheim as collective effervescence, some big sociological phrase. It just means group energy. So think a concert. Think the most amazing concert you've ever been to in, in your entire life, ever. Could somebody just throw, like, what's one you've been on? I've been to or seen. I'm just curious. Amazing concert. Shania Twain. Hello. I feel like one. Anyway. Um, okay. Anybody else? Some, something better than Shania Twain. Zach Brown Band. Okay, cool. Coldplay. Coldplay. Avery Brothers, Switchfoot. Good. Taylor Swift. Hello. Um, right? But there's something about when you go to a concert, you automatically become best friends with the people beside you you never met them before. It's collective effervescence. It's a synergy. It's a, it's a physiological response that something is happening. You're getting goosebumps. You're there with your people worshiping this person, honestly. Think about a game, a sports game. The Super Bowl. The World Series. State beat the snot out of Carolina last night. Praise God. They did. They really did wasn't close ever. And that place looked like I could, I could feel the energy through the stream, like through the TV, man. It was rocking. The sense of awe. Or even, here's a better one, graduation ceremonies. Man, I love going to graduation ceremonies. I've been to a couple here in Greensboro. And man, when somebody's little baby gets called, and you hear that air horn, And I'm like, I'm all about celebrating your baby. But what I'm sensing is you are not anticipating the graduation of that baby. That's why you're so excited. 
I mean, honestly, right? I love it. It's, it's amazing. It's group energy. It's collective awe. Because awe is not just you on a mountaintop looking at some sort of valley. It can come with a group experience. And this is what happens when we remember collectively. This is why gathering is important. It produces a group synergy. We feed off of one another. Awe has to do with remembering. In the study, it says this, awe integrates us into the systems of life, communities, collectives, the natural environment, and forms of culture, and our mind's efforts to make sense of all its webs of ideas. The epiphany, I love that, the epiphany of awe is that it ex its experience connects our individual selves with the vast forces of life. Third point, awe is both gift and disposition. Awe is both gift and disposition. Notice the order of the, the two commands in this passage in Ecclesiastes 12. Be in awe of God. Keep his commands. Not keep his commands. Be in awe of God. This is the designed order. Be in awe of God leading to keeping his commands. Adrian von Kamm notes that the formation of the human person is twofold. Form reception and form donation. In other words, receiving and giving. Receiving and giving. You are being changed and you are changing as you unfold in life. You can't help it. It's part of being human. But all is the active disposition of receiving first the gift of God's presence. And our formation as mature believers has to move away from being totally functional and first begin with being receptive to God's presence and his epiphany and his revelation through the scriptures and through nature and through events people, places, time, and history. We have to receive first, moving then into obedience. So much of us in the Western world are caught up in a functionalism. And functionality leading to the transcendent will eventually run dry. It has to start with the transcendent and the sense of all moving into our functional everyday life. We begin by receiving, move then into giving. And it is here where we begin. We don't begin with the commands of God. We begin with being in awe. Wonder leads to works. Works rarely lead to wonder. And some of us today, you probably haven't been in awe in a while. You probably haven't wondered in a while. You've been trying to do it willfully with your fists clenched, trying to follow Jesus. And I'm praying that there's a fresh epiphany today, a revelation of wonder and awe of the creator God. Von Kamm says, awe makes us more receptive to those unseen powers that beckon our spontaneous obedience in response to, listen to this, the grand laboratory of creation and the ongoing formation of humanity, cosmos, and history. Awe is like a prevenient grace, 
a grace that goes before us, that awakens us to the transcendent. It's a way that God is getting our attention. All has a way of opening our eyes, opening our hearts. It surprises us out of nowhere. It's the primordial disposition of a healthy spiritual life. I think all is the highest, the most important, and most foundational disposition in a healthy believer's life. That is the highest disposition. So, awe is about an openness and receptivity. Obeying commands is about donation. But it begins by us receiving. The hardest thing for us to do as believers is to open our hands. You know what I'm noticing about my little girl, among other things? She really has a hard time asking for help. Watching her put on shoes is quite comical. Right shoe, left foot, left shoe, right foot. Walks around, she's waddling like this, you know, feet out. Doesn't like it, doesn't feel good. She's crying, you know, whatever. I say, let, let Dada help. No! Say, say, do it. Okay. One of the hardest things for us to do as human beings is to say, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I do surrender. That's the hardest thing for us. Contribution's not that hard because it makes us feel good often. Altruism has a selfish component to it. We have to be able to open ourselves up and receive and release. And the only way we can experience a fresh indwelling of the Spirit is by opening ourselves up to God. It isn't obedience and then all. It's all and then obedience. So to, to sustain our life, it must be reordered into all leading to obedience. So here's a word for you that I want, to, I want you to, to write down that I came up with. And it's the word all obedience. All obedience. A W B E D I E N C E. All obedience. Because if we don't have our lives ordered in such a way where all precedes obedience, and obedience precedes all, what we end up with is obedience. <laughs> and we don't want obedience, but. A lot of us here today, Thanksgiving weekend 2023, have a lot of uh, obedience because you haven't been awed in a while. You haven't remembered your place in the cosmos. But what we're after is this uh, obedience. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry says this. He says, I love this quote. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. A lot of us have been told the things to do, but you've not been captivated by the Spirit in a long time. Psalm 128.1 says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord. Blessed. You want a blessed life, man? You want to be happy? Be in awe of God. Fear the Lord. Recognize who you are in, 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 in respect to God. Recognize who you are in reference to God. Psalm 112.1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. I have been so struck at how many psalmists talk about how they love the commands of God. They delight in the law. And all I hear in our moment is, 
it's just all about rules and regulations and commands. Like, I, I hear that everywhere, and I get it. But I'm reading the psalmist, and I'm like, what's going on in his psyche to where he goes, I love the law of God. I delight in it. I take pleasure in it. I feel goosebumps when I think about God's law. Because I guarantee you there is an understanding of the transcendent where all is before obedience. And because of that, he is able to delight in God's law because he's delighting in God. Now, we can, if we're not careful, invest our all into a substitute. Producing what von Kamm calls existential transference. Don't put your all in a Hardee's burger. Don't put all in Myrtle Beach. Don't put all in your marriage. Don't put all in your friend. Don't put all in your desires. Don't put all in money. Don't put all in success. That is existential transference, and it will fail you and turn into dread rather quickly. But the goal for us over time is that an encounter with God, full of all. We've been there before, a lot of us. Maybe you were 15, 16 years old at camp or somewhere on a retreat in the woods. I don't know, somewhere. I don't know why I said woods, but anyway. And you have this encounter with God, and you're like, wow, this moment's changed my life. And that moment radiates into the everyday cracks and crevices of your life. What we need is not just a single moment of all, but a diffused all that enters into every dimension of our person throughout the rest of our life. So, the fourth point here as we begin to land the plane. All leads to communion. All leads to communion. If you aren't looking for it, you might miss this progression in the Old Testament. But Ecclesiastes is uniquely sandwiched between two other books both of which many scholars uh, believe to have been written by Solomon, though there is certainly debate. And some argue all three of these books are books of wisdom, though the third doesn't necessarily feel like wisdom. It feels like poetry. Those other two books on the front end of Ecclesiastes is the book of Proverbs. On the back end of the book of Ecclesiastes is the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And in these three, I find this so compelling and fascinating. There is a succession of stages. Proverbs is focused primarily on functional morality. Little tidbits for living. Good advice. That then moves into Ecclesiastes, which is all about existential meaning and significance. But then eventually, where does it lead? To the Song of Songs and transcendent communion. There is a movement from functional morality and wisdom to wisdom regarding existential meaning and significance to all, closing out Ecclesiastes, to then moving into the Song of Solomon, which is nothing but a poetic picture of existential and transcendent erotic connection and communion with the Creator God. All leads us to communion, to oneness with God, encounter with God. It is one thing for you and I to stand on the edge of a cliff overlooking mountains 
or the edge of the sea where you can see for miles, but it is a whole other type of awe when you are able to commune with the creator of the mountains and the sea. It is one thing to be awed because of a hike or awed because you are experiencing the beauty of the ocean or you're looking up to the sky, but it is a whole other thing to experience awe because you are communing with the creator of that reality. The creator who holds earth at the palm of his hand, who's numbered and named every single star. Trillions of stars, and he's named every one of them, numbered them all. Now, for many of us as disciples of the age of eminence, the secular age, much of Ecclesiastes is all too familiar in one word, disenchantment. And you today yearn for re-enchantment. I think today you want to really be living and not waste your life. You really want a life worth living. You want your 4,732-week life to have significance and meaning and the hope of something beyond it when you breathe your last breath. But I want to make a case that you don't need re-enchantment simply for the fact that enchantment connotes the idea of magic or being under a spell. But what you really need today is to remember your creator, to remember your place, and to be in awe of God. And for that awe to diffuse into every facet of your person. You don't need re-enchantment. You don't need a spell. You need to remember your creator. You need to be in awe of God. Remembering leads to thanksgiving. Thanksgiving leads to praise. Praise automatically leads to awe. You want to be awed? Throw on some praise music, man. Seriously. I've been listening to this song this week. I sent it to Jordan and some other people. Called Joy Comes in the Morning by Todd Galberth and Travis Green. And I was in the community room by myself, weeping in praise. Weeping. Praise is a gateway to breakthrough. Praise is a gateway to experience awe. And how do you get to praise? Well, you got to be thankful. we got to be thankful for who God is, what he's done in our life, our existence. And we are thankful because we remember. Our attention is drawn back to him. So, three simple ways to cultivate awe in your life outside of the ones I just kind of articulated. Very simple. The practical stuff for all the pragmatic people out here. Silence. Seeing. And singing. If you want to cultivate awe in your life and to see the lid of eminence pop open, for light to come in. Try sitting in silence. Try even embodying worship and bowing to creator God. We're embodied creatures. I'd encourage you in your own prayer life, prayer time, find time on your knees by yourself. On Sunday, take time, come to the altar, bow before the creator God, remind yourself of who you are in respect to him. Job 44 through 5 says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I say in response to you? I put my hand on my mouth. 
I have spoken once and I will not reply, or twice and I will add nothing more. For seeing, I encourage you, a couple times a day, look up to the heavens. Lift your eyes. Look up to the sky. You know what our natural disposition is in terms of walking? Is this. This posture constantly is the posture of imminence and dread. But we are called to lift our eyes to God. To lift our eyes to the one who's beyond the sun. Psalm 123.1 says, I lift my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. St. Irenaeus says, the glory of God is man fully alive. And you want to be alive? You want to be living? He goes on to say, but the life of man is the vision of God. There's an ancient Latin phrase, which is corum deo, which means to live in light of the face of God. To live in the face of God. Seeing and open our eyes to a fresh vision of him. The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. And finally, there's a call to sing. As we come to the table this morning, there'll be an opportunity for you to sing. Hands raised collectively as a corporate body. This is, again, why it's so important. It it curates awe in the room when we collectively worship and praise God, lifting our hands. And I know some of us grew up in, in traditions where you're like, I do not embody worship at all. I just use my lips and that's all I use. But I encourage you, just take a step to lift a hand of worship and all. This was the the posture of the ancients in terms of prayer was hands lifted high. This This is not some cuckoo charismatic stuff, which whatever, I'm okay with that. But anyway, like this is just reverence in all embodied, hands raised. So as we close ordinary time, which is the season we've been in as the global church and look to Advent, which begins next week. Ecclesiastes, I think, has prepared for us the only suitable cure for the insoluble search for transcendence amidst the hevel of life and the disease of death. Just before another day under the sun, in the matter of a moment, the arrival of Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Would you bow your heads this morning?